fine. Let's explore this. This is Made in Egypt on CNN. I'm Anna Stewart in the city of London, and this is CNN. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Coronavirus corrections, global stocks extend declines as the coronavirus spreads. Closures and cancellations, Disney closing another theme park, and the Geneva Motor Show is off. Meanwhile, a battle in biotech, the race for a virus vaccine, sees stocks soar. It's finally Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday. It's finally the weekend. We're almost there. And I quite have to tell you guys, for, for Wall Street in particular, that weekend cannot come soon enough. Just take a look at what we're seeing at this moment pre-market. I can tell you it's been incredibly volatile already. We're down. We're expecting a weakness of around 1% at the open, perhaps even more. We have been all over the place. We did see a bit of a lift earlier after a former Fed official, Kevin Walsh, called for coordinated central bank as early as this weekend. That helped the futures bounce off their worst levels for a short while. But all I can tell you is volatility is what we have to expect. And it follows the worst ever point drop for the Dow yesterday, a loss of some 1,200 points. Context, though, guys, I say the worst. That percentage drop of 4.4% doesn't even rank among Wall Street's 10 worst days. Doesn't make it any less painful, though. The three major U.S. markets are firmly in correct mode. What do I mean by that? Well, they're more than 10% now down from their most recent highs, 12% in fact for the US majors. And it's also the speed here that matters. Last week, remember, we were talking about these markets being at record highs. What we also saw in terms of price action is important, a dramatic pullback in the last hours of trade yesterday. Stocks had actually recaptured much of the losses throughout the session. So the close, particularly given its month end, the final trading day of the month today, will be very important to watch. I'm just looking at what's going on in Europe right now. We've got the German markets off more than 4% weakness. Once again, stocks there in correction. In Asia, we've now got seven of the major markets there down 10% or more from recent highs. Thailand is now in bear market territory, down some 23% from recent highs. The big question I think everyone's asking here is what can and, and what should policymakers be doing at this stage? Is fiscal policy from governments better at this stage than central banks taking action with lower rates? South Korea moved today. They announced measures like rent subsidies, tax breaks. This after the central bank held steady on rates earlier this week. So an important contrast there. In the US, investors now anticipating three rate cuts from the Federal Reserve this year. We've got the US 10-year bond yield falling through 1.2% earlier in the session. There is a lot going on. Let me bring you up to speed with precisely what's driving this. The coronavirus outbreak outside of China, well and truly the focus. 
10 new countries reporting their first cases over the last 24 hours. This includes Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation. The biggest outbreak outside of China is in South Korea. There's been 13th death there and over 2,300 cases reported. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, international events across the world are being scrapped. Switzerland has banned any gatherings of more than 1,000 people. The World Health Organization, meanwhile, has warned that the virus has pandemic potential. Once again, I'll bring it back to markets. Dow, the Dow futures are lower at this moment and the major indexes across Europe and Asia entering correction territory. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, I mean, we're seeing losses everywhere at this stage, but it's the speed, I think, of this correction phase that's just caught everybody off guard. Julia, it's incredible. It took just six trading days for the S&P 500 to go from record highs to a 10% correction. That is the fastest that we've seen in more than 70 years. We're talking about trillions of dollars, $3.4 trillion wiped off the market over that period. And that's not counting the losses that we're about to see in the next 25 minutes. So the speed of this has been really, really quick. I think it's another reminder of how quickly confidence can be shaken. It is a fragile thing and it can vanish in an instant. And Julia, you know that when it does go away, people instinctively turn to the Federal Reserve for help. Yeah, they do. And it's a global thing as well. Global investors also look to the central bank of the world at this moment. Interesting, as I mentioned, Kevin Walsh's comments, former Fed governor saying on a, on a, a channel this morning that he believes that the central bank should step up and perhaps even could make comments as early as this weekend. What do we make of that? Because the market right now is saying they expect cuts from the Federal Reserve. Right. Kevin Warsh, who knows a thing or two about the Fed and has actually been rumored uh, as a potential Fed chair at some point. Um, I think we should be honest, though. Central bankers are not able to cure epidemics, let alone pandemics. Um, lowering interest rates, especially from these very, very low levels, um, is not going to cure the underlying problem. As Peter Bookfar, the market analyst, put it, um, rate cuts right now, they're not going to encourage people to travel. They won't bring the factories back to work. Um, but listen, we know that people, that investors are trained to buy stocks when the Fed cuts rates. Um, so if the Fed and other central banks do step in and they do pump in more liquidity, that could, in fact, stabilize the market. And given how much everyone follows the market, everyone from the president on down to the mailman, um, that could help from a psychological standpoint. And, and that is um, a big thing. Now, you mentioned uh, the market is pricing in rate cuts. In some ways, the market is kind of forcing the Fed's hand. Um, there's now a 25% chance of the Fed cutting by half a percentage point in March, um, that's up from 0% just a few days ago. Clearly, there's a lot of pressure on central banks right now. Yeah, it's the symbol. It's the symbol it sends. And your point about sentiment here, I think, is truly key. It's just a pain and unfortunate that interest rates around the world are already so low. The firepower there just is not, is not what it was. We'll see. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you so Thank much you. for that. Now, the coronavirus causing ever greater disruption around the world. Disney, as I mentioned, closing theme parks in Japan until mid-March. The K-pop band BTS has cancelled four April concerts in Seoul. Next week's Geneva Motor Show has been called off and EasyJet has cancelled some flights to Italy with slowing demand there too. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, what we're seeing actually is many of these closures now filtering into the second quarter 
quarter of the year, not only the first, but simply wherever we are seeing mass gatherings that have been scheduled around the world, people are saying these are not going to take place anymore. Yeah, Julia, disruption extending into the second quarter is really what all uh, of the, the corporate world was hoping to avoid. As you said, the BTS concerts, they were scheduled for April. Another event, Basel World, a big watch fair in Switzerland, we just heard uh, that was scheduled for the end of April, has been postponed uh, until next year. There are questions swirling around the, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics scheduled, of course, for this summer. Right now, organizers say preparations are going ahead as planned. But this is a big deal, not just because of the lost travel dollars for people going their hotel dollars uh, being spent, but, but, but what it does to, to how people do business, the lost opportunity to network. In the case of the Geneva Auto Show, uh, the lost opportunity for car makers already beaten down by the coronavirus and other factors to show off their latest ca uh, cars. So I think this is both perhaps a symptom, but also a potential cause of, of the potential slowdown in economic activity that we're seeing as a result of this. So, so very important developments here. Yeah, you make a great point. It impacts orders further down the line. So even if we do see everything coming back online at some point in the near future, there is a delayed onset of the effects of the challenges that we've already seen. To that point, IAG, of course, the airlines, just one of those that's been severely hit here, they're simply saying at this stage they can't forecast. There's too much uncertainty. They, they simply can't quantify the impact and, and how long it will go on for here. Yep, joining a growing club of companies who are saying that. Don't forget, it was just uh, in the last week or so that United Airlines withdrew their, their three-week-old uh, forecast uh, for, the, for the year. So, so IAG, they laid out very clearly the sort of confluence of events that's affected this. There's a drop-off in demand both in Asia and Europe. They say the drop-off in business travel. By the way, the Global Business Travel Association says they think this could shave 37% off the forecasted uh, dollar spend among business travelers uh, this year. They also mentioned, by the way, IAG events cancelled uh, is eating into their, their profits. And they say they're going to be able to deploy some of their long-haul capacity that, that they haven't been able to, to use in Asia. They say they've laid on extra flights to India, to South Africa, to the United States. But they're also cutting capacity, Julia, in their short-haul market. And that, they say, they won't be able to redeploy capacity at the moment. So this is impacting travel, not just to the affected areas, but overall. I think this is what Matt was talking about, the, the, the confidence issue here. Just because you cut rates just because uh, governments announce new spending, it doesn't necessarily get people to events or, or, or onto planes. Absolutely. It's the fear, the uncertainty and the nervousness. It's exactly what we're seeing here at the New York Stock Exchange and in the markets too, reflected for real consumers and for real businesses. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, while most stocks have been under severe pressure, shares of Novavax, Gilead Sciences and Moderna are making considerable gains this week. They're all working on drugs that could be used to fight the coronavirus. And Gilead up more than 10% in the last five days says its medicine is ready to try on patients next month. Now, it's unclear how long it will take to develop an effective vaccine. President Trump has said it will happen pretty soon, while infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says things it could be more like a year and a half. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, joins us now. Dr. Gupta, as always, great to have you on. Can you help us here? There's lots of rumors, clearly a lot of hope here but the path to getting an approval and actually you seeing a vaccine in use here is is complicated can you give us any sense of timing here and engage yeah no i think that, that i think you're you're highlighting the, the distinction here which is that even after you have a a candidate as we call for vaccine something that you think might work 
It's got to go through trials, Julia. I mean, because as good as the candidate might be, you've got to test it to make sure that it, in fact, is safe. I mean, you don't want the vaccine causing more harm, obviously. And then you've got to prove that it's effective, that it actually does what you think it will do. What looks like a good candidate in the laboratory uh, might end up being a great candidate in, in large populations of people, but you don't know that for sure. It's these trials which take time. And I've had long conversations with Dr. Fauci, who you just talked about there, and he's worked on these vaccine trials for other pathogens as well. You know, th these things take about a year, you know, maybe nine months to, to 15 months, as he told me, but it's some time away. It's, it, it's, it's not imminent. It won't be within this, this particular season. Yeah, we have to be realistic about these things. The other thing that I, I really want to get your help on here to tackle is that, particularly in financial markets, I've seen a lot of people calling this pandemic fears, pandemic pandemonium. And the World Health Organization has said, look, it has potential to be a pandemic, but it's not a pandemic yet. And I, I think we need to be very clear on this. How do we define a pandemic and, and how far away are we from that point? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of infectious disease doctors say if you look at the specific criteria, which is basically a pandemic, pan means world, and this is a, a epidemic that's spreading around the world. Um, in many ways, it already meets the criteria for that. You do have these epidemics in many places now around the world, just about every continent except for Antarctica. And you have evidence of what is called community spread in many of these places. And what that means, Julia, is that, you know, look, you're in the community, one person spreads it to two or three people, then they spread it to two or three people and so forth. Once you see three or four generations of that sort of spread, that's uh, clearly uh, evidence that the, the virus is now present in that community. So, um, you know, many people argue that we've already seen that. Uh, even in the United States, we have some early evidence of community spread, not many generations necessarily, but that's likely to happen. So a pandemic is a bit of a semantic term, but from a World Health Organization, it also serves as a rallying cry for, for public health systems to start acting with more uniformity, to, to make these testing guidelines more consistent, so that the world is approaching this as a more, you know, as, as a global force, as opposed to these sort of spotty uh, reactions in various places around the world. And keep in mind, look, you know, the United States, uh, you know, developed world uh, is going to be more buffered against this because of our public health systems. But we're now hearing about a, a case in Nigeria and there's other countries around the world where they don't have as robust a public health system. And that's part of why the pandemic nomenclature makes a difference to start diverting some resources to those places as well. Yeah, it just feels like a more coordinated response to your point required right. here. Dr. Gupta, great to have you with us. Fantastic, as you. always. Thank you. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about South Korea, because uh, South Korea is once more reporting more new cases than any other country. Officials confirm more than 250 new cases for a second day running, most connected to a religious group. Ivan Watson is in Seoul. Ivan, great to have you with us, too. The real concern here is that they can't find members of this re religious group, and those that they have found ha have tested positive. So the situation doesn't feel like it's under control here. No, the number of confirmed cases continues to grow by hundreds every day. It's reached, uh, at latest count, at least 2,337 confirmed cases of coronavirus, 13 people who've passed away as a result. And the Korean Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is predicting that that number will increase this weekend. And the reason, they say, is because they have tested more than 1,200 members 
of this Shincheonji South Korean religious group. And in past tests of members of this group who showed signs of symptoms, at least 80% of them then tested positive for the disease. And about half of all cases in South Korea involve members of this religious group. So it's clearly the infection is clustered within this group, which has a reputation for being quite secretive. And a number of government officials here in South Korea at different levels of the government are now calling on the police to press charges against this religious group, accusing it of obstructing efforts to limit the spread of the disease. The mayor of the southern city of Daegu, which has also seen more than half of the infections in the country, directly accused the group of not sharing uh, lists of its membership, which he insists would have helped try to track down people who could be sick and still could be spreading the disease. The group itself fired back today in a statement uh, that was released on YouTube from one of its spokesmen, insisting that it is, in fact, cooperating, uh, claiming that it's the target of a witch hunt, saying that it can't help out with what it terms as trainees who aren't full-fledged members, that it doesn't have complete lists there. So there's clearly dueling narratives here, but, but also clearly one religious group at the heart of one of the biggest infections, and another church here in South Korea also has seen more than 20 members uh, come from that group as well, which is part of why the South Korean government is urging all Koreans to avoid gathering in large numbers to try to prevent the spread of the disease. That's why you have groups like BTS canceling its concerts for April here in Seoul. That's why professional uh, sports associations like the Korean Basketball League are having games as we speak right now in empty stadiums trying to limit the spread of this, uh, a, a disease that has spread into both branches of uh, the military here, uh, sorry, both militaries, the U.S. military and the South Korean militaries, uh, they have both announced that they're postponing joint military exercises indefinitely because they know when the disease gets further into the military, that can just debilitate uh, a military unit entirely. So this is a big challenge. The vice chair of a Daegu crisis uh, association in Daegu, uh, a doctor that I interviewed today, he said there are not enough doctors in that city to deal with the rush of patients there. He says there are not enough protective suits, though there are hundreds of doctors who have volunteered to come to that city's assistance. Julia? Heroes, and such a huge challenge. Ivan Watson, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Hong Kong police arrested media tycoon Jimmy Lee for illegal assembly on suspicions of taking part in pro-democracy protests in 2019. The newspaper mogul is known for openly supporting anti-government movements and criticizing China. Two other veteran pro-democracy activists were also arrested for their role in the protests. Chinese Olympic swimming champion Sun Yang says he plans to appeal an eight-year ban from competition. The Court of Arbitration for Sport issued the suspension Friday in response to Yang's refusal to do an anti-doping test in September of 2018. 
In the United States, voters cast their ballots on Saturday in South Carolina's Democratic primary. Candidates are making their last push for support ahead of what could be a critical vote. A recent poll put Joe Biden ahead in the state after disappointing results for the former vice president in earlier contests. We're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, China's coronavirus contraction. We know it's coming. We don't know how severe it will be. But it could be bad. The CEO of China's Beige Book joins us to discuss and here to stay. The CEO of Europe's largest hotel chain tells me he's confident his business can withstand the coronavirus hit. More to come. Stay with CNN. first move. We're counting down to the market open. The futures are volatile here, but we are looking at around a one and a half percent drop for U.S. markets as we open up for the final trading session. That follows the steep sell-off that we saw at the end of the session yesterday. Majors falling well over four percent. I do want to give you context here, though. This is the short term. If we look at some of the big challenges that these markets have faced before, take a year forward. Stocks were up 27 percent a year after the market crash of 87. They were up 35% the year after the collapse of long-term capital management in the 90s, up 48% a year after the Lehman collapse in the financial crisis. Context, I do think, is important here, as painful as today is. Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon, joins us now. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back on such a crazy, crazy I know. week. It's a crazy week. What do you think? Look, I think that when the S&P fell through the 200 moving day support line yesterday, that's sort of when the algorithmic trading took over yesterday. So I have a new target for where this should hold. And the new target is essentially halfway between the low of December 18 and the high just of a couple of weeks ago. And that essentially is 28.70 on the S&P. Wow. So you're really looking at a possible another more or less 5% downside from here as a target where you could think about putting more capital to work. Okay, let's take a step back because you mentioned something important there and you said algorithmic, algorithmic trading, if I right. can get the word out. That was what was different about the price action yesterday. We'd actually right. recaptured a lot of the losses in the session. Then at the last hour to half an hour of trade, literally the markets fell off once again. That's not investors going, oh, I think I'll sell some stocks here. That was programs, automatic sell signals kicking in. That's right. I mean, I've actually never really quite seen anything like this. I mean, you know, I was having a lunch meeting yesterday and I said at the time, this has to hold. I doubt it will. And if it doesn't hold, it's going to be a deluge. And that's what it felt like the rest of the afternoon. It was just wholesale, indiscriminate selling. All those ETFs, all those ETFs that people own, they don't know where to in the ETFs necessarily hitting stocks all at the same time. An ETF, of course, exchange traded fund. I just want to tie what we're seeing in stock markets to also what we're seeing in bond markets. Mm -hmm. Because what we're seeing is investors pricing in three rate cuts now for the Federal Reserve. And right. we did see a bit of support for, for stock market futures this morning with a former Fed official saying perhaps the central bank, yes. the Federal Reserve, needs yes, to say yes. something this weekend. Probability of that. So what the Fed needs to consider, and the reason that the Fed has been saying no rate cut, let's be patient, is because if the philosophy is this is going to be a short-term hit, 
to the global and to the U.S. economy, and the Fed's not going to cut into a short-term event. The issue as it's developed, and it's developed really very rapidly, is whether even if it is mostly over in six months, do you do enough damage in the short term that the Fed has to step in anyway? And I believe this morning that's the conversation. So even if we model in that essentially we're going to get past it by, you know, the third quarter, is there room here for the Fed to support the economy? And not just the economy. Think of all those credits, those triple B credits, those high the yield credits, companies. those overly levered companies that if they have a stoppage to their businesses for one to four months, do, do they, they go, go into under? distress? And that's where the Fed can make a difference. We're going to continue this conversation in a few minutes. The market open is next. It looks like a rough one. Stay with us. We're back after this. first move. That was the opening bell for the final session of the week and it's going to be a tough one as predicted. Stocks falling sharply again in early trading. We are down wow, more than 3% at this stage though. We are quite volatile. You've got the Dow in front of you there and the S&P 500 off more than 3%. The worst week on Wall Street since the financial crisis. That's what we're looking at. We've also had Citigroup warning investors not to buy the dip just yet. We could see fresh weakness. You heard the same from Alicia Levine just a few moments ago too. 38% of stocks on the S&P 500 are now in bear market territory. So we're talking 20% or more from recent highs. ConocoPhillips, American Airlines, Twitter, Ford, Royal Caribbean, Carnival Cruise Lines, travel stocks in particular, the autos, the energy. It makes a lot of sense here. Speaking of energy, oil falling sharply once again down. As you can see, over 3% for Brent, over 4% for WTI crude. Alicia Levine, back with us. Alicia, you were saying just before, for the weaker companies here, can they withstand one, two, three, four months of disrupted supply chains? That's the other consideration that the Fed needs to be talking about here. That's right. It's really very interesting because the first worry that the market has was a destruction of demand. Right. That is everybody in China, home, not able to work. How is it going to affect the revenue line in the S&P corporates? But now there's another issue, which is the destruction of supply chains. And so what we've heard from various corporates that manufacture overseas is that actually they cannot get their intermediate intermediate goods to produce the final finished product. And that actually is a completely different problem. And it also hits earnings and it hits margins and it hits the bottom line for cash flow. So if you think about the fact that in the corporate sector, the corporate balance sheet has ballooned since the financial crisis, even as households have delevered their balance sheets and actually households are in a pretty good position compared to where they were before 2008. It's the corporate sector you have to worry about. You put all that together, you say, what does it mean? It means it's very clear the weaker companies, the ones that have a lot of debt and businesses that need required cash flow to pay it off may be in trouble here. So you see spreads spiking in the high yield market. You see spreads spiking in the triple B market, which is the lowest grade investment grade. for these companies rising. Right, which is why I think there's room for the Fed to cut here because there could be a credit issue 
if this goes on too long. You know, I was talking at the uh, beginning of the show, basically saying that we have to make a choice here between what central banks do, whether it's just words, soothing words, versus perhaps cutting rates, and what fiscal stimulus governments need right. to be doing here in terms of action, coordination. There's so much uncertainty, so much uncertainty, and I do think perhaps, and I've said this already on the show this week, that fear it is the biggest risk rather than actually the virus at this stage. Well, uh, that's absolutely right, Julia. It's the fear born of the fact that this is very hard to model. So in the end, like if you look at the U.S., where we're standing today, only 500 people have been tested for the coronavirus. We're, we simply have an absence of information on how to model what this pandemic kind of looks like. And therefore, if you can't model it, very hard to model the hits of the economy. Yeah, so in the absence of information, you know, investors who were sitting at all time gains and everybody had a profit a week ago, basically just hit the sell button. And that's kind of what you're seeing here because it's very hard to model. It's just too much uncertainty in the models. And that brings it back to perhaps needing some soothing words from uh, the central bank here to at least say, look, you know, if we do see signs of greater weakness, we stand ready to take action. I'm just looking at where we are now. We're down some 635 points here. Look, I think this Dow. is a great time for concerted central bank words, if not actions, and also governments to come together and say, kind of like after the financial crisis, saying mm. we're working together, this is a global issue, and I think some soothing words will help us. As we stand here today, the last day of February, oh no, tomorrow is the last day of February. Yes, but it's the last trading day of last February. Last trading day of February in 2020. A year from now, the pandemic will be behind us, and economies will wow. have stabilized. So the question is, where do you get it, right? Can you buy the dip here? And that's really the question. You know, we invest for the long term. You have to decide, if, are you a trader or are you an investor? And for both, you have to decide where you get it's it. It's such a great question. It's the question I should be asking it. But if we've got that chart that I just pulled up of the stock market performance one year after some incredibly momentous events in the world, also for financial markets, stock markets were significantly higher. So for people that don't trade on a daily basis, they're looking at their pensions, they're right. looking at money that they've got invested. What's the advice here, Alicia? So my advice here is to combine the fundamental issue with the technical issue. You know, in the end, when you invest money for other people, you have to think about how to best do this for the long term. And you have to sort of combine what is the market telling me and what do I know about the fundamentals? I would look for that 50% retracement from the all-time low in this cycle, you know, in December 2018. That brings us more or less to 2870 on the S&P. Do not expect this to be a v-shaped recovery in the stock market you're going to get chopped you'll test it again you'll get chopped but that feels like a reasonable place to sit if you're going to put fresh capital to work it's always great to get your calm perspective on the show alicia thank you i'm not sure i feel that calm but thank no, you no no but <laughs> But it is, it's tough watching this. For, for people sitting at home, it's tough watching what's going on and asking the same questions we are. That's so, great. And a week ago, it looked yeah. very different. Yeah, it did. Alicia Levine, thank you so much. The chief strategist there at BNY Mellon. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of our global movers this morning. Airline stocks are being heavily hit as the coronavirus crisis continues. Big European companies have started a ban or restrict business travel for their employees. JP Morgan, of course, was one earlier this week. The United and United announcing it's reducing flights to Tokyo and suspending flights to Beijing, Shanghai and Hong Kong. What about some of the tech stocks also being very heavily hit right now? Facebook, as you can see, Apple.
Apple off some 3.3%, Amazon lower, Netflix actually bucking the trend here, higher by uh, some 1%, Alphabet off 1.4%. Further selling pressure. Demand issues as well in focus now for Procter & Gamble. The world's biggest consumer goods maker also says it's seeing a considerable decline in store traffic. China is its second biggest market. Suppliers based in China, therefore, ship materials that P&G uses in over 17,000 products. So once again, not just a demand story, supply chain issues being talked about on a continuous basis here. We're going to take a break on first move but up next wall street underestimates the impact of the coronavirus epidemic on the chinese economy so you say with our next guest we've got the details stay with us for the price action in U.S. majors this morning. We are losing further ground. We are talking about the worst week on Wall Street since the financial crisis, though earlier, 10 minutes earlier, we were down some 3% at the open. So we're trying to find some uh, stabilization here. But right now, as you can see, down some 2% for the majors. Let's talk about what's going on. Leyland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book, joins me now. Leyland, you collect private sector data. You're actually the largest collector of data in China and you say it's bad it's real bad uh, you know you keep you keep uh, you keep seeing all these pictures and headlines about people going back to work and cars yeah. back on the road so you feel okay this was China's taking care of it they did their quarantines and now it's over that's not what's actually happening in businesses so you, you have people going back to work but firms are not back with normal operations yet give us a sense of quantities because you're saying a third of companies now are operating normally, which is the good news, but a third of them still have people working from home. They're simply not traveling in to work, to businesses. That's a lot of people out yeah, of the workforce. And the uglier way of even looking at it is two-thirds of firms out there are not back to normal operations, are, are subject to some sort of lockdown or restriction on their business. So you have that, you've got people, you've got workers, uh, who are working remotely. You've got firms that don't have their management in. You have firms that are technically open but can't get the inputs to run their business. So right now, the idea that China is back online is just not true. You know, this is, a, this is an economy that is still trying to get back on its feet. Is this changing on a daily basis? I do feel like every day people will try and get back into work perhaps and will have more confidence. When does your data, when was your data collected and ended when did the collection point end yeah just a couple days ago so wow. um, so, so, it's, so very it's very fresh and but we're every day i mean i pick up my phone and it's flashing interviews in real time that are hit, hit going in so we're building this up and we're going to be surveying straight through the uh the middle of march for the full data set things will get better i expect as long as the outbreak stays relatively contained so you're going to see more firms go back to work you'll see things get better but the idea that you're in any type of of, of positive growth that the, the all these expectations we saw at the start of a V-shaped recovery look very, very unlikely. Okay, so what is your prediction? What are your models saying for what the Q1 growth number is in China, just to give us a sense? And then I'll ask you what they'll report. Look, I think the bet, this is no longer a question of positive growth. This is a question of contraction, but how severe the contraction. If they do everything right, you might have a mild contraction. If they don't do everything right or the outbreak gets worse, then you could have a pretty severe contraction in the data. China's pretty good at targeted stimulus. 
ways, and they'll do it, and they are doing it. But the problem is you can throw monetary stimulus at this. You can throw fiscal stimulus at this. The most important lever they're using right now is simply telling banks don't call in loans. Roll everything over. Okay. So they're doing everything they need to do, and we're not expecting there to be widespread defaults. There are going to be some low-hanging fruit. They're going to be crushed by this, and there's going to be a lot of pain across the economy. But if it's a policy priority to keep firms alive, they'll do it. Just an enormous cost to the government balance sheet. What do you think the Chinese will announce in terms of growth? Do you think that they will massage the figures? And we have to read between the lines and say, massage the figures is the wrong thing to say. Actually, they'll give us. A, they'll give us. A, they'll give us a level and we have to read between the lines and the other thing is what does this mean for workers for because that's when the pressure points the political pressure points really begin well if you're talking about the GDP number I think I people am. take that with a, a grain of salt uh, it should be negative there and I don't want to announce a negative number uh, but I think a lot of it depends on how early March looks tonight's actually the most exciting thing because you're gonna see the official PMI come out and if they have anything that's better than the levels of 2008 they are lying this is the most severe contraction we have ever seen in our data. It's not even close. Uh, there should be an incredibly negative number tonight, which could get better over time by the end of the quarter. But, but we're looking at a very negative number. If not, then all of Chinese official data should be under the lens for its credibility, not just the GDP number. You see, I translate that to what we're hearing from U.S. companies as well. We're not really getting a sense, therefore, of how severe those that have China's, Chinese supply chains are leveraged to the Chinese economy, whether that's for demand or whether that's supply chain. We're not really understanding yet how severe the impact of the disruption that we've seen in China is. Agree. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I was reading a bunch of sell-side reports. I read Goldman's the other day, and two and a half percent. They're down from six to four to two and a half percent growth. Where is that growth coming from? We're looking at property. Property is in severe contraction. We're looking at retail and services. They're both in contraction. Manufacturing is looking better than all of them, and they're in contraction. Where is this positive growth? So I think the problem is people are picking up these these weird proxy indicators. They're looking at it's cars sporadic. on the streets. They're yeah. they're looking for some some little bits of hope. That is not what firms are saying on the ground. There is just not an economy that's working yet, and so you're not going to have positive growth numbers for Q1, and you're certainly not going to have anything worthwhile tonight. You should see a very, very ugly number come out we'll tonight. Watch for that. Wow, that was one heck of a reality check. Leila Miller, great to have you with us. Thanks. The CEO of China Beige Book there. All right, let's speak to a company now who actually has operations in China. The coronavirus outbreak also having an impact on the hotel industry. I asked the CEO of Accor how Europe's biggest hotel company is coping and what he's seeing in China at this moment. What we're seeing is uh, it's a mess, I guess. We don't know what's going to be happening next. Uh, what we see is what we hear from people. I talk to my people in China every single day when I wake up, and we have 25,000 of them in China. Right. So we care for them. We told them to be safe. We gave them tools to, in terms of actually things to do and things not to do. They know who to call. They're mostly at home uh, for 80% of them. Uh, and we are preparing for the worst at the same time, seriously. I think it is actually getting better in China as we speak. So in terms of actually, the pace is not increasing anymore. I mean, this is a sign I'm getting from my people. Right. And some actually wants to go back to work. And, if, and I told them, if you really want to, please do. But you're also saying to them if they don't want to go back to work. Yeah, it's they all voluntarily. That's yeah. correct. Wow. And what about, I mean, bookings, room capacity? I love the fact that you've decided to speak in answer to that question about your workers rather than... Well, that's what comes the most. I mean, I guess financial comes next. I mean, I guess first is clients. 
people working for me and their siblings, their, their sisters, I mean, the children. What can we do to help? We've been there for 50 years. We're going through bad times. Don't ever leave when you have some trouble. Just stay there. This is where they need you the most. So, no, and we do that for all the countries in which we have the virus happening. I was going to say around 30% of your rooms are in Asia Pacific. Yeah. What are you seeing there then? Just in terms of volumes of bookings? Well, what we see is, and, and I'll be, and I'm, I always look at the glass half full and not half empty. So what we hear talking to Alibaba, Fliggy, the travel agencies of Alibaba, what we hear from Citrip, they've never seen for the last three days so many what we call numbers of requests, look to book, of people within China looking to travel as soon as it ends. So that V-shaped recovery that we're all hoping for might very well be there in the Chinese sentiment to actually finally breathe and hopefully uh, recover a new life. So you're probably going to have some optimism within that continent fairly soon. People looking to buy cheap holidays. What about in Asia Pacific more broadly then? Because we're perhaps at a different stage there of very different per country yeah. I guess it's being people have a lot of anxiety in Korea uh, it's actually not there in Southeast Asia anxiety in Singapore uh, it's okay in Kuala Lumpur so it and people actually when they were meant to go to Kuala Lumpur now they're not going there they go to Bangkok what they weren't meant to go to Bangkok they're gonna go to KL so which is why for me it's so difficult to assess the cost of it is alcohol is so diversified that when I lose in one country I may gain in another country interesting thing over the last 30 years when people have fear of traveling, they never change continent. They will still continue to go to Asia. They change capital city within the same continent. And we've seen that for terrorist attack five or six years ago. People were fearful of going to London. They went to Amsterdam. Fearful of Amsterdam, they go to Roma. Fearful of Roma, they go to Paris. So each of the, at the last minute, you change your end destination. You never change the continent that you want to visit. So same thing for Asia Pacific. Is it having an impact? elsewhere in the world, if I bring it to Europe, for example, too, I mean, we've seen the outbreak in Italy. Are you seeing, to your point, people tend to switch and, and swap, but are you also seeing a reticence of people simply to travel to be in popular places like hotels? Well, I see it from big corporates yes. on travel bans, which you've seen for the last three or four days, which is, obviously, we need to address this, on, on really increase of fear from people traveling. Seriously? No. I mean, I guess uh, we, uh, you still have a lot of people. It's the one thing to be noticed for all, each of us in the next uh, three to six months, are we going to see a drop in international travels? It really never dropped over the last 30 years, usually growing by 3 to 5% per annum. Might be the first time you're going to be seeing a drop. I kind of doubt it, but it might happen for the first or second quarter. I can actually bet you that within the third, fourth quarter, depending, of course, what's going to be happening yes. in terms of pandemic, um, you might see a strong recovery again, end of this year, early next year. Uh We're back in two. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we are moving further into correction territory for U.S. majors. As you can see right now, down some 2.7% for the Dow and the S&P 500. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, we were saying, what, a week ago here that investors were complacent amid the risks. They're certainly not complacent anymore. 
Yeah, and you know, at some point they're going to be overreacting, but I just don't know when that is. You know, I mean, that's the the whole point of markets is they they react and they overreact and they price in expectations and and still struggling to figure out what this coronavirus effect is going to look like on uh, on the global economy. We know that it has strained global supply chains. We know that companies have been warning or at least pulling their guidance for the past few days, saying they don't have the clarity and transparency in their business at the moment to see how this is going to shake out into the next uh, days and weeks. And even as, Julia, you have some indications that perhaps the virus is peaking in China where it began, you have the potential for headlines over the next days and maybe weeks of new infections elsewhere. And that's why I think so many investors are scared of getting in front of, you know, reaching out to catch the falling knife, as they say so terribly, uh, on Wall Street. Every kind of little attempt to find a bottom here feels like it fizzles. Yet you also haven't seen this big capitulation you usually expect to see when you have a big uh, market route. So we power through it. Yeah, we do. And I think the other thing here is we were just having a discussion on the show about the the fact that U.S. companies don't realize that a lot of China still isn't back to work and this is going to be a longer term issue. What about for central banks here? What about for the Federal Reserve? We had comments from a former Fed governor this morning saying yeah. time for them to step up and act. What do we think about that? And then you have some who are saying they'd like to see some kind of coordinated global right. A central bank action, which I'm not sure wouldn't just spook uh, people. You know, the other thing is that we don't have a lot of room to maneuver, right? When you have rates that are already so low, don't you kind of uh, you don't you don't have the same kind of bang for your buck, if you will. I mean, uh, futures markets are pricing in moves this year, more, you know, rate cuts this year. And so that's what investors are saying maybe will be the thing to help stabilize this. Um, but this isn't like, you know, this is we this isn't something that happened and then the Fed is reacting to to fix. Right. This is something that hasn't happened yet or is ongoing. So it makes it a little more difficult to figure out what the what the reaction would be. Yes, words perhaps at this stage matter more than actions, yeah. just the knowledge that they're there and stand ready. Leadership, you said it. Right now we've got the Dow down, what, over 3% now. Incredibly volatile. Christine Romans, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. It's shaping up to be another painful, volatile session. Stay with CNN. We've got you covered for now. You've been watching First Move. Have a good weekend, guys. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.